0: So, one of the areas I find the most fascinating for ChatGPT in healthcare is the fact that, talking about the domain, you know, about the technical component, but doctors spend way too much time, you know, entering uh, information on the uh, clinical systems, clinical records. Uh, you have to find the right ICP 10 codes, CPT codes. And so, I find ChatGPT is one of the best ways for, let's say, a doctor to just say, okay, in a text or even just maybe saying it one day, what's happening and you know, what's the situation of a patient, how we are feeling, uh, what did they find? And they just say, you know, oh, this person has this disease with these characteristics and then ChatGPT can automatically create the entries of the clinical records, can automatically pick the ICD 10 codes, CPT, and maybe even just provide some recommendations one day.
1: Data, artificial intelligence, The metaverse, crypto and web 3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Eugenio Zaccarelli. And Eugenio is, um, is fascinating. He's a data science leader at CVS Health, and is uh, CVS Health is a Fortune 500 company, He's also Forbes 30 Under 30, uh, the World Economic Forum Global Shaper, a Fulbright scholarship recipient, studies across, studied across MIT, Harvard, and the Imperial College London. He's a TEDx speaker. He was also uh, instrumental in developing policy recommendations for the White House and CEOs uh, on the fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. And he's a recipient of 15 plus honors and awards, including the John McCarthy Award for Contributions in AI, AI, the NOAA Talent of the Year, and the ISBI BCG Future Leaders Award, featured in Forbes, Fortune, HBR, The Washington Post, Bloomberg, The Financial Times, as well as several TV programs, radios, and shows. He is um, fascinating. He just shares his perspective on data science, AI, especially in healthcare. And we had a fascinating discussion about, you know, like in most of the recent episodes, Chad GPT, generative AI, and the risks and possibilities and the excitement around it. Take a listen. Eugenio, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? Thanks for having me. Doing great. No, it's, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. Why don't you kick us off with who is... Eugenio, what is your background? How did you got to, uh, how did you get to where you are today?
0: Mm-hmm, definitely, I'll do my best. But basically, I'm a data scientist. Uh, right now, I'm focusing more on the management side of data science, so managing a team of data scientists, trying to do some cool artificial intelligence, and at the same time, also a bit of coding. That's pretty much where I started, so definitely a yeah, technical uh, level of expertise. And I've been working in AI and data science now for quite a few years. I've been focusing on a few different industries, but mostly on the healthcare side. First in the UK with the NHS, so the National Healthcare System in the UK. And now recently with CVS Health and also at MIT working still in the healthcare spectrum. And I've studied across MIT, Harvard and Imperial College at the intersection pretty much of technology business and also like how we can use all of these technologies to try and make a positive impact in society and on all of us as uh, as people.
1: That is awesome. No, and, and and, you're being very modest about your background. You know, you, you, are, you're also a, you know, Forbes 30 under 30, you know, an AI leader for fortune 100, uh, a Fulbright scholar. And, you know, you also have spoke, you've done several, delivered several keynotes and also a TEDx. Um, and with that, with that strong background. So thanks so much. It's such a pleasure to have and have you share the insights with the audience. So, you know, you mentioned cool things in AI, right? Let's start with that, right? What is cool in AI today? And what is cool? And we'll, we'll distill out saying what is just cool and not really a value and what is cool and valuable, right? But what's cool in AI today? Well, it's a great question. And I'd say there's a lot of cool stuff in AI right now.
0: And probably sometimes that's, one of the big issues, because there's so much that can be done that sometimes, you know, it's more a matter of like, how can we stop for a second and try to better understand whether what we're doing is going to be actually you know, useful and positive, or if it's going to be hurtful. I would say what interests me the most, and what I think it's the coolest part right now, is all of the social and economical impacts of AI. I've seen over the years, a lot of different technologies, you know, like nfts web three, and so on making a lot of changes but one of the things i find the most interesting in um, ai is how it's already impacting some of the social components i was speaking the other day of like okay if ai is going to be helping us gain some more free time what's going to happen to us what's going to happen to our work week what's going to happen to you know us as a society are we going to start having more free time are we going to become country and nation of thinkers uh, and also how is it going to change in terms of the economy are we going to have more productivity or more leisure time and so on so i think all of these components are
1: pretty cool even more so than the technical components right now that is awesome so i mean let's let's the 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 big topic of the day of for the last three months you know chat gpt and uh, generative ai uh, what why are we seeing this you know according to you why are we seeing this explosion of interest in ai because you know you've been in data science i've been in data science for decades now and we've you know all seen like incremental changes and things and happening i have a thesis on this right but i'd love to hear how you view the world right what changed that has now brought on this onslaught of engagement and developer interest and stuff like that with ai
0: Yeah, I would say it's difficult to pin it down to only one single item. It's probably like the right moment and right tool at the right time, so to say, in the sense that I feel now in terms of, you know, society, we started becoming a bit more aware of AI, what's possible, what's not possible. So also across the broader population, there is more awareness of what AI is and can do. Even though it's still a bit of a buzzword, but we're all more aware of what is AI and what can do. And I feel like examples of ChatGPT or also, you know, stable diffusion and so on, were probably uh, started picking up so much because we're probably good tools that can provide some benefits on a day-to-day to all of us. And mm-hmm. they also do not really require any technical expertise. You don't have to know about AI to use these tools. You can just use them. And that's usually, at least for me, the best way to have an effective tool, it's something that just works, doesn't require me to know how to use it or how to play with it. And so in this case, you can have people that are completely out of the technology sector use ChatGPT to write articles or to create images. And at the same time, you can also have leaders that can use these tools. And when you have leaders that say that, it becomes very interesting, it becomes very interesting for a company for investing and. Everything that's around, there.
1: Yeah. No, it's actually interesting, right? I mean, there's a few things that you said I want to pick apart. And one of the, one of my theses is also like you're exactly right, right? It's the the human-machine interaction paradigm has changed, right? So with, with Chat GPT and the ability to actually have a simple natural language interface to one of the state-of-the-art, you know, intelligence models or large language models in the back end to do things and perform tasks for you. It's pretty amazing, right? I mean, that whole API interface is now human language oriented, the prompting, right? So that was that was one. I think that unlocked the ability, it, the, the cost of creation. So imagine like uh, two years ago, if somebody had to build uh, a natural language processing model to do a uh, custom entity extraction from a piece of text. They have to hire a data scientist. They have to hire an ML engineer. They have the data engineer who cleans up the data. You annotate the data. You actually train your models with it. You deploy it in production, you manage it, you test it, and then the business user gets to actually play with it. Right. Today, they just go go to chat sign up for a free account, exposes other issues, but we'll come to that. You put the data in and you can just, hey, find out these named entities from this particular text. You get the answer, right? The cost of creation, and same thing with you know stable diffusion or you know, uh, stability, any of the other um, um, image generation, text to image models, too. You don't need to hire a graphic designer and a, uh, an artist to actually build a cartoon. You can just ask an intelligent model with the right prompting, with the right, you know, back and forth. You, you know, you can now generate art that is, you know, at least as good uh, or better than in some case uh, human art, human generated art. I think the cost of creation just went to zero, Right. I mean, it was like there was this cost of time and money and materials and stuff that doesn't happen anymore. So I mean, it's fascinating. But coming to the place both of us play in healthcare, right? How does this apply to healthcare? I mean, or any regulated industry that is like literally saving lives, right? You know, it's it's, it's very your cost of error is actually very high. How does this relate to how does this revolution in generative AI and ChatGPT GPT apply to healthcare? What is possible, what is not possible yet? And um, how how do you how do you see how do you see this shape up? Yeah, that's a fantastic question because I think
0: the healthcare industry probably one of the best examples of the positive aspects that something like chat GPT can bring, but also at the same time you know, all of the, the issues and challenges that we have to be non- afraid of, but we for sure have to tackle them. And that means, you know, ethical issues, bias issues, uh, and everything like that. So one of the areas I find the most fascinating for ChatGPT and the healthcare is the fact that talking about the domain, you know, about the technical component, but doctors spend way too much time, you know, entering uh, information on the uh, clinical systems, clinical records, uh, you have to find the right ICD-10 codes, CPT codes. And so. I find ChatGPT is one of the best ways for, let's say, a doctor to just say, okay, in a text, or even just maybe saying it one day, what's happening and you know, what's the situation of a patient, how they're feeling, uh, what did they find? And they just say, you know, this person has this disease with these characteristics, and then ChatGPT can automatically create the entries of the clinical records, can automatically pick right ICD-10 codes. CPT, and maybe even just provide some recommendations one day. And so it's mm-hmm. literally what you said about how can we give an interface that's human like to people that need human like interfaces. And so we don't need, and this doesn't really help my case because I'm a data scientist, but we don't really have to have anymore, you know, technical people that can write SQL queries to answer questions through the data. We can just literally ask, okay, what is the disease that is the most Prevalent across the U.S. and it can automatically analyze data and provide this information. So I would say pretty much bridging this gap between you know what doctors would like to do, which is focusing on the patients, and what they have to do, which is spending way too much time on the technicalities.
1: That's awesome. No, I think it's a pretty um, fantastic. I mean, you, you laid out, touched upon a lot of things, and I want to touch and in, go into that a little bit. Right? One is. Definitely, I think this, as an industry, it's a lot more knowledge worker centric, right? But definitely the fact that there is there is value, you know, healthcare is more about care than health, I mean, right? If you really think about it, it's just, it's, it's the, it, be it, you know, if you go to a physician, I mean, yes, at some point we'll all be comfortable just have a, um, you know, uh, an intelligent AI autonomous agent that has passed all the medical exams, give us medical advice. We're not there yet. You know, I don't think we're going to get there anytime soon, right? Uh, But it'll happen. It'll definitely happen at some point. On the other hand, like, you know, I think most of the expectations of the customers, which is patients in this matter, in healthcare, is more than just accurate answers and fast math and, you know, give me insights, right? There is a lot more deeper um, mission that people are on when they're in healthcare, so the opportunity, as you said, is like yeah. I mean, if you can have, if you can empower each of the healthcare worker to with tools, so the cost of actually doing the business of care goes down, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with with uh, intelligent system. Although cost, I have an issue there right now because the cost to train an LLM and to maintain it and to do inferencing is actually pretty expensive today, right? You know, it's not cheap, but it'll come down. Um, and then second thing is like around you know, I think we we I worry about in the rush for technology and stuff, we have to really think about, we, we cannot forget the business of care, which is like what we all exist for, which is the patient and the patient experience and patient outcomes, right? So it's, there is an important scaffolding or the guardrails you have to put in when you use these cutting-edge technologies to, you know, you need a generative AI version of the Hippocratic Oath for healthcare. If you're using generative AI, right? So I think there is there's some you know groups that I know are working on this, which so is amazing. But you know it's interesting. So you you named a few different use cases, right? So let's let's pick a few. I mean, give us give me a few more examples where you've seen in your network, in your you know community, your workplace, whatever, you're seeing an actual implementation that is working in healthcare. The use of you know, either a chat GPT or even a homegrown LLM or models. And you mentioned one example of like, you know, just, hey, I'll give you some notes, give me the CPT codes and ICD codes mm-hmm. from this particular piece of text. So give, give me some examples that, you know, makes it real for the audience, right? Here's what people are doing right now.
0: Yeah, and that's pretty much what you are saying as well. So I am not a big believer in, uh, you know, technology like uh, chat GPT or LLMs replacing doctors. Rather to enhance them, I mean, I see these technologies, including AI, as you know, stethoscopes, as MRI machines. So, there are tools that provide more information for the doctor to take better decisions. So, the key point is still the doctor. And I feel, thankfully, that a lot of companies, a lot of startups are still in the development phase. So, nothing ready to be sold, ready to be productionized, but are in the process of going this direction of saying, okay, we can empower doctors with better tools to allocate their time in the right way. And so pretty much on what you were saying, like we can give these tools to doctors in a way that they can, you know, ask better questions to the data, have information. Maybe the LLM can be able to you know, look into all of the files across hospitals or across the world, even one day, and then provide insights to the doctor on you know like okay this happened in our case this happened in our country or to a similar patient, and then for the doctor to not have of course its role completely replaced by a machine, but rather to have all of these new data points that can then help the doctor take better decisions. And you know for instance at MIT we did put together an app that uses machine learning to provide doctors with know, insights on, okay, is this patient going to survive this type of surgery? And if so, with which probability, or is it better to do another type of procedure? And that is a great way, in my opinion, to go in this direction of technology should empower and enhance doctors' abilities and also in their roles, and LLMs are gonna go in that direction. But then it's just a question of how can we do so with all of the ethical, and bias components that we have in the data. And of course, if we give very powerful tool to doctors, like we are probably soon, how can we make sure that we foster innovation, but at the same time, we don't you know, create issues, especially for patients?
1: Yeah, no, I think, you know, so one, it's interesting, and I wanna touch upon the patient and the patient experience side too, but you're, you're absolutely right, right? There's the opportunity is to provide a Jarvis suit for the doctor to become mind mass. They now have the access to any information and being able to reason across multiple pieces of information so they can focus on what matters most, which is taking care of their patients. Uh, Totally get that. On the patient experience side though, right? We live in a world where like, you know, nursing shortages and healthcare, uh, you know, caregiver shortages is running. It's the top news everywhere, right? Um, Also on the other hand, care delivery systems like providers are, um, most often than not, are really margin compressed. They run a very low margin. It's a services business. It's really hard. Now, you put the two, and then on top of that, you actually take the example of a patient experience today. It's terrible, no matter where you are, right? Whichever part of the system, if you're signing up for a, you know, you're looking for and trying to sign up for a clinical trial, it's terrible. That experience is terrible. You go to a you know clinical trial recruiting website you answer 300 questions click on 45 different radio buttons to select whether you're actually eligible so you're reporting the data you know on your own based on your memory or all of that stuff and then you wait to hear back from nurses and people and call centers and it's a terrible experience on that front you've taken example of somebody walking into a hospital system the amount of intake forms you still have to sign over and over again, every single time, paper forms, sign it and stuff. And somebody types it in. All that data doesn't come in. The nurse comes in the first question. She asks you the same 20 questions you answer to the front door. You're having that issue, right? And then on top of that, you finish a, let's say a specialist uh, appointment. Then you talked about a lot of those things and a lot of different stuff. And unless there is clear instructions that the doctor the physician is giving you as the patient saying you should follow these regimen they'll print out a document and give it to them but they lose complete context of that conversation they have no idea and especially in a world where patients want to know more they want to actually you know understand the context of their condition their disease their options all that kind of stuff it's not there and the last example i'll give you is pairs or like you know like the whole experience of trying to get uh, to a place of care let's say you want to go do an MRI test, right? Or a, or a CT scan. You walk up to the diagnosis center, you sign up and you ask the absolute easy question, how much it is going to cost for me. And 90% of the time, the diagnostic center cannot answer that question. Go oh, depends on your plan. Your plan tells me that this is your thing. I don't know whether you've already met your deductible. So with the, the plan covers for diagnostic reasons, for you know it doesn't cover this thing. So it it will be anywhere from three hundred dollars to seven thousand dollars that's going to cost the CT scan, or MRI, and it is just such a terrible experience. Is there an opportunity? And I see this like fundamentally right. There's an opportunity where, like, these are all decisions or recommendations or insights or being able to interactively ask and get answers, dialogue of multiple pieces of information, most likely about the patient. That you know, the patient themselves are asking questions about pools and pockets of data that exist about them in different systems. Is there something here that we can do to generate, you know, use this? cutting-edge, you know, large language models and generative AI tools to change that experience, you know? and and what are the risks and challenges of doing that, right? And I'm brainstorming yeah, this because, I mean, I've been thinking about it for, for for some time now. Yeah, definitely. And that issue,
0: you know, the interoperability issue, so having multiple data systems, having a, a bit of your data, and imagine for me coming from different countries as well, there's data all over the world in different languages. So. Every single time it's a pain, you know, and you have maybe vaccinations done in one country, some other details that in another country. And it's extremely difficult, I would say. Definitely, you know, algorithms like LLMs or ChatGPT and so on can help in making a better understanding you know, of all of this massive information. Say hospitals, but also basically every company has a huge amount of information, you know. In, Word documents in different formats, and usually that's unstructured information. And one of the biggest issues over the past few years was, okay, algorithms in uh, you know machine learning, let's say, work really well with tabular structured information, but how can we make you know, more insights? or can we create more insights and gather all this information from all of these different data sources, different locations? So I definitely see a future where this type of Text algorithms can be the portal and the single point of entry for a patient, let's say, or for a doctor to ask all of these questions, and then the algorithm be able to pull all of the information, all of the text information, from all of these different environments or hospitals or countries. The question, though, to me is how the algorithms and the technologies might be there, but we have to change the cultural component, you know, and we beliefs we have on privacy and on data sharing to be able to tackle that, because especially in the healthcare industry, you often have technologies available and ready to use, but it's the mindset and it's the, you know, often it's also really needed and necessary to have trust issues, so to say, you know, in sharing data. So that cultural component, I would say it's going to be the key, not the technology itself.
1: No, I, I agree. And you know um, we're at, at, at Autonomize, the company that I'm CEO of, we have been thinking about these issues for a while. And you know we live in golden times where the, 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 the access to cutting edge research on technology, specifically in generative AI and LLMs and GPT's of the world are now available, accessible for everybody. Yet, you know, just like you talked about the unstructured data versus structured data, to contextualize this technology for healthcare requires work. Right, and requires how do you build trust with you know when you're building systems for um, you know uh, for for patient care or automated or, or or making a process or a business process more intelligent within the healthcare system or payers or pharma, you have to really contextualize the use of these technologies to say how do I bring in the right notion on privacy and security, how do I minimize harm by reducing the the, the bias on the data, how do I do you know, if you're using a large language model to generate text and do some retrieval augmentation on a smaller scope of text that you want to retrieve from rather than, you know, hallucinating from Twitter feeds. Right. So there's all of these different, I would say, quasi technical and some of them are actually business process kind of issues, too, that you need to really you know, comprehend and stuff. But I think, you know, I think the future is so bright in the space. Um, you know, we finally have all the tools, and I'm not saying all the tools, but a lot of tools, uh, in our disposal to really put back, go back to the center, which is put the patients in the heart of the industry. Right now, it's three different, you know, you have your payers, you have providers, you have life sciences, you have, you know, uh, caregivers, you have clinics and virtual care. Where's the patient? you everybody's talking about this patient, but they're completely missing from the equation, right? there is an opportunity to bring it back together. Um, that's great. No, thank you for sharing your insights here, engineer. One, uh, I want to take a little bit of pivot. So one of the things that's fascinating about your background is your career evolution. You went from being a data scientist, you're still a data scientist, to managing a team of data science and, you know, uh, progressing in this thing. What does that take, right? I mean, the reason, I'll give you the context of my question. You know, data scientists have a really hard job. One is thinking through the problem and then, you know, communicating that through code or, you know, Python and libraries and then passing it on or actually doing the map, the machine learning part of it, actually wrapping that into an API, delivering it, deploying it, managing it, the whole nine yards. But they also have a very important job, which is like it's, you know, today it's gotten a lot easier, thanks to ChatGPT, but how, you know, explaining the value or just communicating the value of what you're doing, because a lot of this value is in a lot of data science storytelling as well. So, and then, you know, so you've lived that, you've done that and stuff, and then you evolved into a manager or a leadership role in here. What can others learn from your journey that you want to actually just, you know, put it, give it, give some, give me some tips for other aspiring data scientists who wants to get into management and grow in their career? Yeah. And it's a great question because I would say, you know, like after
0: all of these years, I basically realized, you know, how all of the complex areas you know of data science and are not really about code, are not really about algorithms. What well, are the initial parts that you have to tackle? But I tend to say to my team, you know, like the complex parts of data science are everything around data science are, you know, how can you better interact with stakeholders? How can you communicate that effectively, as you said? And all of these things are the ones that sometimes make or break a project. You know, there might be the best algorithm, must there might be the best Machinery model, But if you're not able to do some of the, you know, more people management or soft skills type of uh, uh, endeavors, then you're definitely not going to have success. And so i say one of the key focuses right now for me is how people are at the center of everything. And so if you work in the healthcare industry, you know, you know that the patient's are at the center and everything has to be around them, around their health, around their well-being. But at the same time, also within a company, I now have realized you know, how no project is about the data or about the technology, but it's about making sure that your client, your internal client, the stakeholders that work with you do have a clear benefit from the product. So you understand the problem that they have and the solution that you're putting together on the data science side actually answers their question. And so it's all about how can you better interact with them, understand their needs and um, pain points, translate them into an actual product, and then give it back to them. So it's pretty much all about you know people, stakeholder management, communicating effectively, and connecting the the dots. So technology and data science, unfortunately or fortunately, is only a tool and a means to a, to an
1: end. That's that's so true. You know. Um... Technology is just the tools, the means to the end. You know, don't forget the the true end. Don't forget what you're trying to do. In fact, you know, it's it's one of the things that worries me a little bit. Is like, the, you know, we're moving so fast, and there was all this moratorium on trying to pause for the next six months and stuff. I don't know whether that's going to really make a difference, but I understand their point. And one of the things that you know worries me is like, well, you know, how we all like to chase S curves, right? I mean, you know, you're trying to actually look at hey, there's something new, let's actually go get it to the level of adoption. It's interesting, and in the market, any market for that matter, most of the value is really captured probably early on. A lot of value is captured early on and then later on in the circle with, with laggards and stuff. But then most of the value that is created for the market, for the inducers, for the uh, folks, is not in the early phase of the S-curve. It is actually when you hit when you start seeing this translate to business outcomes and ROIs and adoption drives and things like that, right? So one of the things I worry about is like, we're just going to, we just started this Cambrian evolution and everybody is now trying to build the largest model with the most amount of parameters or the fastest inferencing. And very soon the lowest cost of actually inferencing as well, maybe the approaches that everybody will take. And you're not really, there's not enough, for, hopefully this will open up the, the, the ecosystem for builders like you and I to actually go and take these right piece parts and build the recipes needed to go solve real problems and drive ROI. But one of the things I always worry about is like, you know, when you're going so fast and stuff, there's all these nuggets. There's a lot of things that are getting generated, but you're not really waiting to translate that to value. You just jump on to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, this next one, right? Well, you know, and I think, you know, the, I'm not too worried about it in healthcare, to be honest, because most healthcare organizations are pretty slow to adapt. So, which is, uh, un, you know, it's unfortunate scenario and rightly so, because they want to be more risk averse and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so that, that kind of concerns me a little bit and, you know, uh, can you share anything that, um, uh, you know, organizations like CVS is doing in the space or is that off, off the right, uh, the, um, off the discussion today? I mean, you're not representing them officially. It's your opinion, but you know, anything you can share.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's my opinion, but I can definitely say that, you know, in China, what I've seen over the years is how most data scientists, you know, especially the ones that are the, at the beginning of the career do data science because they're fascinated, you know, about the problem, about the technical complexity. So you often see, you know, data scientists that just want to do data science. And that's, of course, you the know, reason why they set up a job, but it's an art and it's one of the probably the most complex uh, you know, it is to try and take the problem and understand how to solve that sometimes without ending up doing the things or the tools that you want to use. So I see very often, you know, people want to do deep learning and, uh, you know, LLMs and we try to throw charge GPT at everything, you know, whatever yeah. the issue is, so how can I do something that's stimulating for me? And that's usually one of the pitfalls, right? As we, yeah. as we said before because that's not putting other people in front, you know, it's putting yourself, it's putting the technology at the center. And so, as you said, most of the value is at the end, so towards the final 20%, so to say. And so you usually have most of the junior folks getting into projects just because they're fascinating, you know, about the technologies, the deep learning side, and they then end up having projects developed that don't really solve an issue, and really um, provide benefits. Yeah. And so those are the ones that tend to then die and we put on a shelf, and then they move on to the next one. And instead, it's yeah. usually more challenging to say, okay, I'm gonna pick linear regression or logistic regression or something which is very simple. But I know that this will be deployed, implemented, understood, and this will translate into an actual product. So that is the most
1: challenging part for me. Interesting. That's you know very well said. It's like how do you really, you know, back to our the, the earlier theme. How do you translate to value? And for translating to value and putting in production, you need to understand it. You need to, um, you know, understand all the dimensions of it, the risk with it, the the, uh, and, and you need to make sure that it's adopted well. All like there's a lot more steps than just going into an API and asking a question, getting the answer. Right. And it makes total sense. I mean, that's a great thing. Are any of your data scientists, you know, afraid that they're going to, their jobs are going to be irrelevant, uh, you know, with all the intelligent agents and now with like, you know, things like tool farmers and uh, high, you know, hugging GPT and stuff like that, that'll just do the models, model selection and stuff for you. What are your it's thoughts a, on that? It's a great question. So I would say everybody that works in the science
0: is definitely aware of the, your potential and the potential of having a lot of their job changed by by ChatGPT and all these tools. But I would say, and this is probably one of the areas where more industries should learn from. I think that they do have the technical ropes and the ability to understand that their job will never be completely you know, taken away from them. It's more about yeah. a new tool and, okay, we can use it to improve our you know, work life to improve the way we do things and focus on the better things. And so something which is fascinating, which I see is how, you know, people use it and you know, data science use it just to get rid of some of the components, which are the most tedious ones, you know, like doing the same bit of code that you always do with data cleaning, feature engineering, model selection yeah. and so on. So it takes care of all of the boring parts all of the annoying parts. So that you can focus on the high level value I can think of, you know, what is yeah. the architecture, what is the right thing to do here. And so yeah. I would say maybe more industries that have no uh, super, no such technical expertise might benefit from understanding that, you know, it will sh- change the job for sure, but it will make it better.
1: No, it's, it's fascinating. It's just like, you know, it'll just make data science better again, right? I mean, just make sure that you, uh, just like for the knowledge workers, it kind of gives the option to the data scientist to be more productive right now. So it's actually pretty pretty uh, cool. Well, that's, that's great, Eugenio. I think that was an amazing close for that conversation. Uh, where can the viewers and listeners get in touch with you? Where can they find you on the internet?
0: Definitely on uh, social media, so on LinkedIn or Twitter as well. Twitter as well,
1: very cool. Eugenio, thanks so much for taking the time today. This was such a pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me, it's been a pleasure.
1: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments or ideas for me or my guests and check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.